Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Can a Good Christian Be a Good Citizen? The Reign of Christ the King. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 22, 2009. This very last Sunday of the lectionary year celebrates Christ the King. Such explicitly political language to describe a religious leader raises a provocative question. Can a good Christian be a good citizen? The Gospel this week records the most dramatic political confrontation in all of Scripture. Pontius Pilate's interrogation of Jesus in the Praetorium, his threefold declaration that he found him innocent, then his death sentence verdict to pacify the mob, mock the Jews, and protect his job. John's Gospel makes it crystal clear that the passion narrative in general, and the trial before Pilate in particular, were specifically political rather than religious crises. Jesus' trial and Roman execution epitomized a clash between two kings and two kingdoms in the allegiance that they both solicit from us. The Yale historian Yaroslav Pelagin once observed a fascinating paradox about the Christian confession, and I quote, one of the many historical ironies of the Christian message is that of all the famous ancient Romans, Julius Caesar or Cicero or Virgil, none has achieved even nearly the universal name recognition of an otherwise obscure provincial leader named Pontius Pilate, who has the distinction, which he shares with, of all people, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and with no other human creature, of having his name recited every day all over the world in the Nicene Creed, as well as in the Apostles' Creed, crucified on our behalf under Pontius Pilate. Pelican also notes that just as pagans accuse the earliest followers of Jesus of cannibalism because of their Eucharistic practices, they also accuse them of sedition because of the overt political implications of their confession of a kingdom of God in a citizenship in heaven. The birth of Jesus signaled that God, in the words of Mary, would bring down rulers from their thrones, Luke 1.52. In Mark's gospel, the very first words of Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark 1.15. John's gospel takes us to the death of Jesus, and the political theme is the same. Jesus was dragged to the Roman governor's palace for three reasons, according to Luke 23.1 and 2. All of them were political. We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, in saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so, in short, Jesus died as a political criminal. 
Pilate met the angry mob outside the praetorium and then grilled Jesus alone back inside. Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus replied. My kingdom is from another place. You were a king then, mocked Pilate. Yes, you are right in saying that I am a king. Pilate then went back outside, declared that Jesus was innocent, then had his soldiers beat, flog, and humiliate him with purple robes and a crown of thorns, befitting a man whom he miscalculated was a political poser. Hail, King of the Jews! Back outside, the mob hounded Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate thus found himself sandwiched between angering the mob and betraying the emperor. And so he caved in. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. When Pilate crucified Jesus, he insulted the Jews one last time by fastening a notice to the cross, written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, that he knew they would find repugnant. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They objected, of course. Don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. But it was too late. What I have written, I have written, said Pilate. And to be sure, with his mockery of the Jews, he wrote much more than he ever could have known or imagined. Charges of political sedition dogged the first Christians 20 years later. The annals of the Roman historian Tacitus describe the persecution of Christians under the Roman emperor Nero. On June 18th in the year 64, a fire broke out in Rome that burned for 10 days and destroyed much of the city. Most people suspected that Nero himself started the fire, ostensibly to rebuild Rome. And so, in order to allay those rumors, Nero blamed the Christians. Since these Christians, says Tacitus, were, quote, hated for their abominations, end quote, Nero punished them with refined cruelty. Similarly, in his work, Life of Nero, the Roman biographer Suetonius tells us that under Nero's reign, quote, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a set of people adhering to a novel and mischievous superstition, end quote. For their part, Christians returned the favor. The early believers used two graphic images to picture the Roman state. Rome was a beastly dragon who stood in front of a woman giving birth in order to devour the newborn son who would rule the nations. Rome was also a whore, drunk with the blood of the saints. In his little book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, 
The historian Robert Louis Wilkin demonstrates the broad and deep antipathy that developed in the first five centuries toward the Christian movement. For about a hundred years, the emergent Christians were invisible to most people in the Roman Empire. But across the decades, they earned a reputation as an alternate and antisocial community that existed on the margins of the state. Christians, as Wilkins shows, were thought to be fanatical, seditious, obstinate, and defiant. Tacitus called them haters of mankind. They scorned long-held Roman religious traditions. Many of their adherents came from the lower classes and seemed gullible. They refused military service and met for secret rites rumored to include cannibalism, ritual murder, and incest. All of which is to say, in the words of one early critic, the Christians, quote, do not understand their civic duty, end quote. In his view, they actively undermine society with their indifference to civic affairs. Some critics even blame Christians for the fall of Rome. When Jesus insisted that his kingdom was, quote, not of this world, he did not mean that it was merely spiritual or relegated to a future age beyond history or in heaven. Far from it, as his detractors rightly summarized. In John's dialogue, Jesus' enemies rightly concluded that if Jesus was a king, a lord, and a ruler, he clearly usurped and upstaged Caesar as lord. The two kingdoms clashed. In its simplest terms, the kingdom of God that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like on earth, here and now, if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. Imagine if God ruled the nations and not Obama, Medvedev, Kim Jong-il, Mugabe, or Ahmadinejad. Every aspect of personal and communal life would experience a radical reversal. The political, economic, and social, social subversions would be almost endless. Peacemaking instead of war-making. Liberation, not exploitation. Sacrifice rather than subjugation. Mercy, not vengeance. Care for the weak instead of privileges for the powerful, generosity instead of greed, humility as opposed to hubris, embrace rather than exclusion. The ancient Hebrews had a marvelous word for all of this, shalom or human well-being. In apocalyptic dreams and visions, this week's Old Testament reading from the prophet Daniel traces the rise and fall of the greatest political kingdoms in human history. Babylon, Persia under Cyrus the Great, Greece under Alexander the Great, and then Rome. But above and beyond them all, Daniel foretells of a king in a kingdom that is not ethnically spatially or temporally limited. Daniel describes it as an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and will never be destroyed.
Rather than an ethnocentric kingdom limited to one land and one people, this kingdom welcomes all peoples, nations, and men of every language to worship the one true ruler of the kings of the earth. The Lord's Prayer, then, just might be the most subversive of all political acts. We pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. People who live and pray this way have a very different agenda than Caesar's, whether Republican or Democrat, capitalist, socialist, or communist, whether democratic or theocratic, because people like this have entered a kingdom and pledged their allegiance to a ruler. They submitted themselves to the reign of Christ the King. Now for further reflections. Why has Christianity embraced political power down through the ages? In what sense can prayer be political or subversive? <clears throat> what do you think Jesus meant when he said, Render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's? Or what did Paul mean when he told believers to submit to the governing authorities in Romans 13? Or finally, consider the words from 1 Peter. Fear God, honor the king. For books this week, I review Tori Murden McClure. The title, A Pearl in the Storm, How I Found My Heart in the Middle of the Ocean. New York, HarperCollins, 2009, 292 pages. After three years of training, on June 14, 1998, Tori Murden McClure left Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, in an effort to become the first woman to row solo 3,600 miles across the Atlantic Ocean to France. Her 23-foot boat, the American Pearl, had no motor and no sail. It was, in fact, equipped with solar panels, a water desalinizer, a laptop computer, a GPS device, a satellite phone, in a 10-pound trove of her favorite books. She also carried 150 pounds of food for the 100-day journey. The feat unfolds about like you would expect, with McClure rowing, rowing 12-hour days and battling winds, weather, and the currents. Pods of dolphins, numerous whales, a shark or two, jellyfish, garbage, and the occasional cargo ship broke the boredom of the open sea. McClure takes offense numerous times at the obvious and honest question. Why would anyone undertake such a dangerous feat? In the first few pages, she gives her own answer. Quote, Through solitude and exposure to uncertainty, 
I believed I would confront my demons. Beyond this confrontation, I expected to find a doorway to some higher intellectual awareness." End quote. All this, mind you, after graduating from Smith College in Harvard Divinity School and skiing 750 miles to the South Pole. In language from the latter parts of the book, McClure was on the so-called hero's path to slay my dragons. The story sounds like that of a highly talented but deeply insecure performance junkie who continually needs to prove herself to herself and to others. When McClure was caught in Hurricane Danielle 90 days out and a thousand miles from France, she finally requested a rescue. For McClure, this represented the epitome of shame, failure, and tragedy. And so exactly one year after she landed in Philadelphia on the rescue cargo ship, she left the Canary Islands bound for Guadalupe in the Caribbean in order to slay those dragons by rowing this time from east to west. No, she would not be known as the woman who had failed. But what she learned on that successful trip, how she, quote, found her heart in the middle of the ocean, end quote, was through embracing her helplessness rather than by chasing heroism. The moral of her story reminded me of a great line from the movie Cool Running about Jamaica's first Olympic bobsled team. The coach told the team, if you're not somebody without winning the gold medal, you won't be somebody with it. Tori Murden McClure, A Pearl in the Storm. For movies this week, I review The Window. It's a film from Argentina. The Argentine director, Carlos Soren, lets his camera linger over every gorgeous detail of a Patagonian landscape, a country estate, and a family household in this story of a dying man named Antonio. Antonio is 80 years old and bedridden, but, he no, but he's nonetheless excited about a visit from his estranged son Pablo, who lives in Europe. His housekeepers give him a haircut. They fret over the menu. He pulls out a 40-year-old bottle of champagne that he's been saving for a special occasion, and he asks for his favorite blue jacket. Before Pablo comes, he grabs his favorite walking stick and sneaks out for one last walk on his 750-acre estate. The birds and butterflies, the flowers in the fields, the wind, clouds, and the sun, all these flood him with memories. Back inside the house, we hear the non-stop rhythm of an old clock pendulum. As Pablo is a famous pianist, they get the family piano tuned. The passage of time, the particularity of place, and family memories merge for Antonio in the visiting Pablo.
This film is in Spanish with English subtitles. Again, the title of the film, The Window. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by John Milton. John Milton lived from 1608 to 1674. The title of the poem, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth, doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. The poem, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent, by the 17th century John Milton. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 22nd, 2009, celebrating Christ the King. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.